0: The idea of human-powered transport is being discussed. In a story on The Conversation, the story has the headline, Few of us are cycling, here's how we can reverse the decline. The story begins. Rates of cycling are falling in Australia. A national report released today shows more people started riding bikes early in the pandemic, but that hasn't lasted. The percentage of people now cycling are lower than in 2011. This is the latest episode of Climate Conversations and I'm your host, Robert McLean. Welcome, it's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The story from the conversation continues. Less than one in six Australians report riding a bicycle weekly. Just over one in three have ridden in the past year. During the time of pandemic restrictions, when there was less other traffic on the road, people perhaps felt safer to ride, creating streets that are less busy, noisy and easy to ride on, and cross safely encourages more people to cycle and walk. I've just spent the best part of a month on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, visiting my son and my daughter, my daughter's two grandsons and my son's brand-new son, Murphy. And while I was there, I lamented personally several times that I could see no evidence of interest in the climate crisis at all from anybody. But then, as I was leaving, we were driving to the airport. Sadly, I had to fly. We were driving to the airport, and there on a car in front of us, was a small bumper sticker that said, climate action now. Suddenly, my spirits lifted. I was leaving, but my spirits felt better. That small and seemingly insignificant bumper sticker illustrated to me that somebody, somewhere in the Sunshine Coast, did care about the climate crisis.
1: I'm Bonnie Harrison, and welcome to The Details Long Read. This week, we're talking solar power. Written by North and South magazine's George Driver, it's solar eclipse, our renewable power struggle. Millions of panels could soon be erected across thousands of hectares of the country as an unprecedented solar farm boom begins. It's part of efforts to more than double the country's power generation by 2050. What do we stand to gain, and what might we lose?
0: Yes, you can find the details for that story the show notes.
2: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Arianna Brocious. Today we're talking about climate fiction, and I'm really excited to dig into this. As we talked about in our episode a few months back with television producers, climate is a growing topic in Hollywood and on TV, but it does seem that there's more works of literature that delve into the consequences of burning fossil fuels. And as we know, stories in any medium are probably the most compelling and effective way we have of sharing and remembering information. Our brains are sort of hardwired for this. But there is a healthy debate about what kind of writing most inspires people to act. Dark tales of a dystopian climate future or positive versions of a greener, more just world. Right, and what sells as entertainment and what causes people to act may not be the same stories. Fiction writers like Paolo Bacigalupi have a tendency to frame our climate future as dark and dystopian as a way of pushing people to pay attention and take action.
0: A well-written story of
2: warning can create a sense of unease and a sense of awareness that otherwise doesn't exist for people. Despite the popularity of climate dystopia, writers like Denise Baden think that's the wrong approach to take.
1: Positive stories with solutions whether it be in the field of news or education or fiction, actually engage way more people than more catastrophic tales of what will go wrong if we don't do anything. And some, like Tori Stevens, are focused
2: on ensuring climate stories are inclusive and resonant for all people. So many people are story-driven. We want to reach all people around the climate crisis and talk about climate solutions, the hope and justice side of things.
0: A link to that hour-long podcast, Fairy Tales and Fear, Stories of Our Future, can be found in the show notes. Now, if you happen to be in San Francisco in the USA, you can hear Jane Fonda in conversation with Greg Dalton from Climate One. The event is entitled Jane Fonda, A Lifetime of Activism. Promo for the event says, Jane Fonda has spent the last several decades fighting for Indigenous peoples' rights economic justice, LGBTQ rights, protesting the war, gender equality, ending the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territory, and more. Now, she is devoting herself to the climate emergency via Fire Drill Fridays, the national movement to protest government inaction on climate change, and she started in October 2019 in partnership with Greenpeace USA and the Jane Fonda Climate PAC, which is focused on defeating political allies of the fossil fuel industry, Fonda continues to fight for the most vulnerable among us, consistently pointing out the intersection between the myriad of causes. You'll find the link for that event in the show notes. Now we shift to a story from the Melbourne Age, and it's written by Mike Foley. The headline for his story is, El Nino not official, but prepare for a scorching summer. His story begins... Climate experts are predicting a long hot Australian summer with increased risk of drought and heat waves despite the lack of an El Nino declaration from the Bureau of Meteorology. The prediction follows record-breaking 2023 weather during which the national mean temperature was 1.5 degrees above the average temperature from 1961 to 1996. We are still with the Melbourne Age and the next story has the headline Climate activists let down this Turak driver's tyre. He sees their point. When Turak resident James Vinata worked to find one of his car tyres deflated and a note on the windscreen accusing him of driving a gas guzzler, he was miffed, but he could see the point. This is the same thing as plastic bags we use to get at the supermarket. We have to force it, otherwise people will not change their habits, Vinata said. We're human beings, we're just lazy people. Venata was among residents in the affluent southeastern suburb whose four-wheel drives and sports utility vehicles were targeted by an environmental protest group called Tire Extinguishers this week. Yes, let's have a listen now to Yale Climate Connections.
2: I'm Dr. Anthony Lisewitz and this is Climate Connections. New Orleans native Megan Williams was 16 when Hurricane Katrina devastated the city. She recalls seeing the damage to her aunt's house even a few months after the storm. Every single window had blown out of the house. And the water line is maybe an inch from the top of the ceiling. Every single thing is caked in mud and mold. And that's kind of when the wheel started turning. I pretty distinctly remember telling my mom that day some version of, I want to help, no idea what that meant. Ever since then, she's been learning about the power of water and how to help her city deal with it. She became a civil engineer, and today she works for New Orleans' Office of Resilience and Sustainability as the Urban Water Program Manager. She helps design and implement a range of strategies for managing excess water in the city, including green infrastructure solutions such as rain gardens and detention ponds. She says as the climate warms, intense rainstorms are growing increasingly common in New Orleans. It's like somebody just poured a bucket from the sky on top of us all at one time. These are our everyday summer storms, and they're becoming more and more frequent. So she's committed to helping protect New Orleans residents from dangerous flooding. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org.
0: Let's shift now to Inside Climate News where we have a story by Christopher Tigu. The headline of the story is As the harms of hydropower dams become clearer, some activists ask, Is it time to remove them? The story begins. For most of Joey Alley's life, the Elder Dam was merely a part of the landscape, just another feature of the Ocono River as it runs through Whittier, North Carolina. Ali grew up about five miles from the dam on the Koala Boundary, the tribal territory of the eastern band of Cherokee Indians, about 60 miles west of Asheville. Some tribal members, he said, the dam provided a good spot to catch sicklefin red horse, an olive and copper-coloured river fish with a pronounced dorsal fin that gathers at the basin beneath Ella's Spillway each spring. In Cherokee, we call it Uga Didi Till, Ollie said, which means it wears a feather because of its dorsal fin. But in October 2021, Eller Dam became more than a benign fishing hole for Ali and other Cherokee members. While working on a malfunctioning mechanism of the floodgate, dam operators accidentally unleashed a wave of sediment downstream. According to state officials, the event buried important aquatic habitat for the sicklefin red horse and several other sensitive species under 18 to 24 inches of silt and sand. The dam's owner hired a contractor to remove the sediment, but federal scientists fear the incident could have caused those species irreparable long term harm. Join me now as we shift to a story from the University of Melbourne. It has the headline A Zero Carbon Transport Sector Needs More Than Electric Vehicles. The story begins How many people do you know who own an electric vehicle? Most Australians still drive petrol-fuelled cars, but the proportion of electric vehicles, EVs, on our roads is set to boom in coming years, particularly if the government's plans to introduce fuel efficiency standards prove successful. Transport researchers at the University of Melbourne Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology have studied the expectations EV owners have for charging and what they think of policies and technologies that aim to shape EV charging behaviours. The next headline says, Why we need to prepare Australia for electric vehicles. Coming up on Saturday, September 9, at the Melbourne Town Hall, is a Town Hall-like meeting, organised by Letitian.org. The meeting is entitled, Stepping Up Together. It's organised by a group led by Robert Patterson. And one of the speakers is a paediatrician from Northern Territory, Dr Louise Woodward. And she is concerned about fracking and the Beetaloo Basin in Northern Territory. She will attend virtually, but here is what she said in a short video put together to promote the event.
1: My name is Louise Woodward. I'm a paediatrician working in the Northern Territory. And I'm speaking to you today to ask for your help. Our government has greenlighted fracking the Beedaloo Basin, which is a beautiful area in the outback, just south of Catherine. Fracking the Beedaloo Basin will increase Australia's emissions by 20%, just this single project, putting all of our health at risk in terms of the climate crisis, but also putting the local people of the Northern Territory at risk due to direct health impacts of fracking. These occur due to contamination of groundwater as well as the air around it. This puts people at risk of things like asthma, pregnancy complications, as well as stillbirth and preterm birth. These are complications that we already see so much in the Northern Territory. We have some of the worst health outcomes in Australia and we cannot afford to make them worse. To make it even worse, the Northern Territory government is planning to open a massive gas processing facility in Darwin called Middle Arm, where they will process beta gas um, and turn it into LNG for export overseas, as well as petrochemicals. Now, I'm sure everyone knows that petrochemicals are dangerous to human health. They are planning on making these only three kilometres from population centres in Darwin, putting people at risk of cancer. We know that People living within five kilometers of petrochemical facilities have a 30% increased risk of leukemia. People living near gas processing facilities also suffer lung infections, asthma, heart disease and increased rates of death. Why is the federal government funding this project to the tune of $1.9 billion And why is the Northern Territory government facilitating projects that are actually going to harm their local people? Why are the Northern Territory people being sacrificed for the sake of fossil fuel company profits, particularly in the midst of a climate crisis? There is no safe way to frack the Beedaloo Basin and certainly no safe way to process any more gas in the midst of a climate crisis up here in the Northern Territory, we need the help of everyone in Australia to come together and tell the federal government that this is not okay. We need to deal with the climate crisis urgently, and we need to stop the middle arm project and Beedaloo fracking if we are to have any hope of addressing climate change, and if we are to protect the people of the Northern Territory from the known health impacts of these dangerous projects.
0: Promotional material for what has been described as an emergency meeting says this is a meeting for Climate Action Grassroots with focus on community and grassroots attendance and support. The TEALs, the community depends on initiatives such as Vote Climate One and Vote Earth Now, as well as the independent community media, are all a very important part of the mix. It goes on, we are stepping up now because in the last few months, the global climate breakdown situation has become deadly serious. Scientists have warned us for decades and now we see the reality of what they had been warning us about. There are signs we may have just crossed a catastrophic ocean tipping point over the last months. Thermaline circulation has been interrupted, and sea temperatures are going through the roof. You'll find the link for the meeting in the show notes. Come with me now as we move to a story from Scientific American. It has the headline... There are no U.S. climate havens from heat and disaster risk. The story begins. Southeast Michigan seemed like a perfect climate haven. My family has owned my home since the 60s. Even when my dad was a kid and lived there, no floods, no floods, no floods, no floods, until 2021. One Southeast Michigan resident told us That June, a storm dumped more than six inches of rain on the region, overloading stormwater systems and flooding homes. That sense of living through unexpected and unprecedented disasters resonates with more Americans each year we have found in our research into the past, present and future of risk and resilience. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now, please don't forget to check out the show notes as you'll find lots of links for stories I've mentioned and others in there. Now, I'd love to hear from you what you think about this podcast, so please email me at number 7 at icloud.com. Don't hold back. If you like it, tell me. If you think it's rubbish, tell me. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe. And please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. And I'd love you to share it with your friends, because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. Now please take care.